0: Hello again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where my guests answer the simple question, what five things from your life would you choose to preserve in a time capsule? They can choose anything at all, but they must choose four things that they cherish or wish to have or experience again, and one that they would be glad to see the back of. Something they regret in their life, find embarrassing or even loathsome. My guest in this episode is the producer and writer Dan Schreiber, who is probably most famous as the host of the hugely successful podcast No Such Thing As A Fish and its TV spin-off, No Such Thing As The News. Dan works for QI as a researcher, or elf, as they're usually called, contributing to a number of their books, the Books of General Ignorance, and also other programme ideas. For example, he co-created the BBC Radio 4 panel game The Museum of Curiosity, with Richard Turner and the program's host, John Lloyd. During lockdown, Dan started his own Instagram live show where each day a different guest would show Dan and his audience a selection of interesting objects from around their home. The sort of objects that everyone has tucked at the back of a cupboard. It's called Show Us Your Shit. Dan is one of the most creative, imaginative and, without doubt, pleasant men you'll find. And as always, when you talk to Dan, you get more than you bargained for. So here are Dan's five things for his time capsule, plus some brilliant ones that nearly made it in. I hope you enjoy it. So we might as well launch into it, ready? Have you thought of five things? You got an idea? No,
2: I thought. No, yeah, I have. No. yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: So you're going to put five things into a time capsule, four things that you love, and one thing that you're glad to get rid of from your life. Okay, so let's find out what the first thing is.
2: So it's very hard compiling a list for this show. Um, I have a huge list in front of me just in case I suddenly change <laughs> my mind and get cold feet on an item <laughs> I had. But the first thing that I'm going to put in is a book that I came up with and co-wrote back in 2017 called The Book of the Year. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. and this was a book that I did with my buddies of my podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish. Um, mm-hmm. It's a sort of spin-off book. And I think it's a perfect time capsule item because what we aim to do is write a book that captured the weirdness of our planet from a single year. That was the brief. We always read books of histories of amazing people throughout the years who've done bizarre things. And it's what we talk about on our podcast and it's what history lessons are full of. But we thought, well, if everything has happened, it has to happen always, right? It has to happen in the space of the year that we're living in as well. There must be amazing stuff going on. So we looked around and we compiled an entire book of all the maddest events of the year and the people who are the footnotes of history. And Mm. really, it's a book that's written for a time capsule, because this is a thing that represents Earth in the year 2017, which if 100 years from now, which is, I think, the The limit I want to give to my time capsule. I think I want this to be opened in about 100 to 150 years. We can decide at the end of this show. I'll let you decide. Uh, Well, I'll do Um, that
0: for you because I'll be here.
2: Yeah, yeah, there you go. You can uh, open that for me. I'll put it in my diary. (laughs) <laughs> and so weirdly this is kind of what this book was built for it was built to be read by the future people the people who want to look back and go weren't they odd back then and that's what we that's what we did you know the, so 2017 just if i'm looking at the back it was the year that mafia members were banned from becoming godfathers it was the year that 2000 bees were stolen in Beeston
0: Yes, uh, <laughs> yeah so I apologize for that.
2: <laughs> I mean it was just yeah it was just wonderful stories there was a thing about the the world's um fortune cookie writer basically this guy writes every fortune cookie and he has done for the last 30 40 years. He lives in America and oh in 2017 God. he retired because he had writer's block after oh, all those no. <laughs> years of coming up with fortune cookie ideas. So for me it's it's something that I love so much when I go into a secondhand bookshop is finding a book that has compiled the oddities of its time Mm. and being able to sort of step back in time via a single author who's gone and compiled it all for you in real time. And you marvel at them and go, I'm so glad their story, that story of that person who walked the streets of Covent Gardens selling a bizarre thing they're being spoken about and thought about a hundred years from the time of their passing. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's a, there's another thing which is why this book is very important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, 2017 was, I would say, the greatest year of my life. So hmm. much happened for me in that year. It was the year I came up with this book idea. And because it was a book of the year, we had to write it in the year and release it in the year. So the turnaround was incredibly fast. But 2017 was also the year that I got married to my wife, Fenella. Yeah, We conceived and our son was delivered in 2017. I had my <laughs> first child. Um, I'm now a dad of two, but Wilf arrived in 2017 and was conceived in 2017. And we bought our first house. So it was this mammoth year of marriage, house buying, child, and something I've always wanted to do, write a book, all in one go. And I'm able to show my son this book one day and say, you know, the year that you were born, here's all the (laughs) mad shit that was going on when you were born. And I was able to include a dedication. The the other writers, Anna, James and Andy, very kindly allowed me to put in um, that the book was for all of our partners. And for Littlefoot, who is was my, my son's nickname at the time, oh, uh, and for Littlefoot, who just like this book, was conceived, assembled, and delivered in 2017. So it's a it's a real meaningful book to me. Yeah, this, it's lovely. This, uh,
0: it's funny, isn't it, those, how quickly a year becomes something that's a long way away, how quickly those facts in there are forgotten, in fact. They seem important at the time, and then it's gone. So if you look at, say, for example, annuals, Almost every television programme when I was a kid put out annuals. So you'd have the Blue Peter annual and the Top of the Pops annual. And if you look at those from particular years, everything in them at the time was put in because it was the greatest thing. It was the latest news. And now they're almost entirely forgotten. All the faces that they're, they're talking about, all the famous people that they're talking about, nobody remembers them.
2: That's right. There's that fantastic list that William Goldman included in The Adventures of a Screen Trade, where he showed lists of the top earning actors and actresses from, uh, let's say, 1974 and then 1975 and then 1984. And and half the names, unless you're really in the know, you don't Mm. know. There'll be a Sylvester Stallone or a Robert Redford that kind of sticks out. But it also shows... That not many of those names remain in that top ten, despite us still knowing the fair few. It's sort of like, yeah. what happened to that top earning actor that they disappeared by the five years later list? Like yeah. it's and totally forgotten. I have no idea who that person is. It is yes. bizarre. Time is only a year, but you're right. It's
0: it's more. It's gone. So what is your favorite information or person or fact?
2: I think, I mean, it might be the fortune cookie mm. thing, because I just think that is so Bizarre, but it's I mean, really it's
0: really sad, isn't it? That story, actually. This is a man who's dedicated his life to passing on hopeful messages to people, and then suddenly he runs out. He runs like, dry, yeah. His, his hope is gone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you could start opening fortune cookies, and it says, What's the point? <laughs> it was probably forced retirement when they came
2: in saying, Listen, can we have a quick chat about the latest batch? Yeah. Um,
0: Who gives a I damn? Hate my life? What? <laughs> <laughs> don't just don't bother. Don't bother. It's not going it to make any difference. In the end, it's all going to mean nothing. <laughs> yeah,
2: there were so many um, facts in here that I have already forgotten. Even as the co-author of the book, that you just yeah. you read and you think these are phenomenal. Like just flicking through it. Let's go for a random, um, a random one. The king of the Netherlands revealed he's secretly been moonlighting as an airline pilot. <laughs> Now, do you remember this? I mean, this is kind of gone now. Oh, yeah, William Alexander, the king. So in 2013, he'd been co piloting commercial flights uh, twice a month, but he wouldn't tell the passengers. So he was the king, and the deal was he couldn't do any long-haul flights in case he needed to get back immediately to be king. So there was the sort of, we can't let you do overnights in Australia because you might suddenly be needed as king uh, in the Netherlands. And um, yeah, so it was stuff like that. What
0: a brilliant thing to do. Yeah. So In fact, he, unlike most royalty got the chance to be a normal person. He did, and
2: apparently a lot of people did know that he was the pilot, so it was sort of the equivalent Uh, of... There used to be stories about how um, when Michael Jackson was a kid, he used to, because he was a Jehovah's Witness, go around to people's houses with a fake moustache on. This is when the (laughs) Jackson 5 were were massive. And he would say, can I talk to you? And they'd all go, of course, come on in, knowing it was him, but sort of go, don't let up, The, the guy... The pop star with the mustache (laughs) thinks he's fooling us. Like, they knew it was the king uh, who was there flying their flight, but they they couldn't really say anything. Um, A NASA rocket launch to create artificial clouds was delayed because it was too cloudy. That's a lovely (laughs) one. Yeah, it was an amazing book, but as I say, it was an amazing time in my life. It really... Captured so many things. It was it was the year that I grew up. So I'd love to put this in the capsule.
0: Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely put it in.
2: Oh, thank you. Um, along with because. Every book needs a bookmark. Okay. And I've got a bookmark, which is my wedding invitation, which I want to use as the bookmark oh, for fantastic. the book, which I designed with my buddy Alex. And it says, Fenella Bates and Daniel Schreiber, Mr. and Mrs. William Bates request the pleasure of your company to celebrate the marriage of their daughter to some punk with a weird accent. <laughs> Saturday, 7th of January, 2017. And yeah, so that's fantastic. that's going to go in as my bookmark. So, I mean, it's a useful book for the future anyway, for
0: people yeah. to read. Most people who were getting married in a year and suddenly found they had a child on the way and they'd just bought a house, the idea of them writing a book seems (laughs) absurd. It was mad. And and I did a
2: fish tour that year. I mean, it really was a year of um, powerhouse, you know, lack of sleep, lack of... um, I think when things got too much, that felt normal. So it was like, okay, because it was organising the wedding and the lead-up as well. And we had a honeymoon and... Like it was just—it was a year that, for both me and my wife, it, things went nuclear in the most fantastic, beautiful way and yeah. we're still shaky off the back of that year, I would say. <laughs> we're
0: still- you haven't really stopped, Dan. I mean, you never stop. I've never known anybody do so much as you. I admire that fact that you have an idea and then pursue it and make it happen, which is uh, unlike most people. Well, you know, I had an idea for a book. It was for a diary. But it was a diary for very unimportant people, and it was already filled in. It was filled in with things like, you know, Wimbledon starts this week, get your tennis racket restrung. As if you were involved in almost everything that was going on in the world. That was the idea. Oh,
2: that's nice. As Mm. if you were, yeah, yeah. As
0: if you were at the centre of the world and very important. Yes. So, you know, Queen's birthday, Write letter saying, sorry, can't make it again this year.
2: Yes, send cake, send flowers uh, to apologise. Exactly that idea. That's a lovely Uh, idea.
0: I know, but I never did it.
2: Well, you might one day. The thing is, all the things I've done have taken years for me to finally get round to doing. It looks like they're impulsive, but they're actually years in the making, stewing mm. away in the background, and then ready to be served. Uh, so, this idea, book of the year, actually, I had the idea for it probably in about 2011 when originally, in my head, it was called Earth's Annual Stock Take. And the idea was it was an annual book where, you know, if you picture Earth as a business, mm-hmm. um, well, we're all the investors by being a part of it. We're helping out with it all the time, so we deserve a report. And the report would be... <laughs> all the gains that we made, all the new things that we had, all the things we'd lost. So, you know, uh, terrible this year, we lost a species of dolphin. This is not good. Um, But we gained a new invention of socks that know when you sleep as you're watching Netflix. Uh, You know, so (laughs) it was just a, it was a total, what have we no longer got? What's the new stuff that we've got? And uh, presented as a business report. And I had that for years and years in my Mm. mind. And I just couldn't think of the way to, to do it. And then, When we did Fish, Fish turned into a TV show, which was John Lloyd's idea. John Lloyd of QI and Blackadder and very Mm -hmm. close friend of yours. Um, He put us on TV as a spin-off show of No Such Thing as a Fish, which was No Such Thing as the News. Mm. And we broke down the week's news every every week on BBC Two mm. after Newsnight. And off the back of that, I was just compiling some of the information. I thought, my God, this is amazing. If we compiled a whole year of this, this would be Earth's annual stock take. Yes, I can finally do Earth's- So. You know, that's an idea that's been sitting there for a long, long time.
0: But it's extraordinary serendipity, isn't it, coming together with uh, Andrew and James and Anna, that you have yeah. to all be working in the same office. I suppose, really, it's the nature of the programme and the office and the, the sort of place it is that brings those sort of people together. But it's amazing that you should all manage to gel so well.
2: Yeah, I think it's... Um it's the it's this sounds very sort of wanky to say, but it's the insatiable curiosity that we seem to have for facts. We don't get bored by hearing a new fact. And I don't mm. think anyone does, but when you do it for a job day in, day out, you can get fact fatigue. Yeah. But for some reason, just as soon as you discover that I found out something a while ago, um, when um Lee Harvey Oswald was buried. Because of the nature of, of you know, they're burying the most hated man in America, right? Mm. This is someone who's shifted the whole culture of the country. Um, so, we can't let people know that we've got him sitting in a crematorium waiting to be buried. No. So, all the preparation for his burial, the suit, the flowers, everything, was for a cowboy called William Bobo. <laughs> That's who was buried that day, a cowboy called William Bobo. And... Just before the burial, when his mum and I think his brother had been invited, it finally got out that this was going to be Lee Harvey Oswald's funeral. So a bunch of news reporters came with their cameras ready to take snaps of it. And when the pallbearers found out who was going to be buried there, they all said, no, I'm not burying this guy. So the paparazzi ended up carrying the coffin to... (laughs) to bury William Bobo, the cowboy. And it's just stuff like that. You can't hear that and not suddenly perk up and go, no, I'm back in. And that's what the four of us have. If we have any kind of, you know, if we're on the road and we have any fights, because we're like brother and sisters Mm -hmm. at this point, you know, someone says a fact and we're all back in, all is forgiven. It's, you know, so that's the lucky gel,
0: I think. The, the
2: fact that, We could be pissed off with each other, and then someone said, did you know, and then we're back in.
0: (laughs) Brilliant. All right, Dan, when I'm going to take the book of the year, 2017, and your wedding invitation, and we're going to put it into the time capsule, to be opened in 100 years' time. Nice. Okay. Yes. There we are. Good. Okay, I'll make sure it's well-wrapped and protected. (laughs) (laughs) So what's your second item?
2: My second item is an item that we, and I'll leave this up to you, we'll have to extract from my dad, mm-hmm. um, who lives in Sydney, Australia, so bit of a trip. No, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. It is his samurai scissors. Now, my dad is a hairdresser, and so is my mum, and they both met in Hong Kong as hairdressers. And they set up a salon there when they were in their 20s. And they were the first, I think this is right, certainly one of the first Westerners to set up a salon in Hong Kong. Mm. And they were doing really well. It was all going great. And this opportunity came up, a um, a traveling Japanese samurai sword specialist was in town. And he had on him a pair of cutting scissors for hair that were 15000 Hong Kong dollars in those days. Now, I don't know what that equates to. Um, you know, it, that, it's, it's very expensive for a pair of scissors. Sounds a lot. Yeah. yeah. The exchange rate is something like $10 to one pound or something like that. But I don't know what it was like back in the 80s. And I don't know, you know, the conversion for how much that would be to equivalent of these days. I went to Hong
0: Kong in the 80s and I wish I could remember. It, mm. it seemed fantastically cheap. I do remember taking an empty suitcase and just... Buying clothes for everybody, yeah, yeah, and having suits made for fifty quid and that sort of thing, you know.
2: That's what it was. Shanghai yeah. Tang in Hong Kong was the, uh, mm. the place for your suits. But so my dad's had these scissors for, I would say, thirty odd years, maybe a bit longer. And the idea of scissors is usually, if you're a hairdresser and you have a pair of scissors, you need them resharpened every few years or so, maybe like mm. six years or something. My dad has taken these scissors to be sharpened. Uh, for numerous times over the last 30 years. And every single time he has been told there is nothing we can do to sharpen these scissors. They're (laughs) as sharp as the day that you bought them because they were carved by these samurai in Japan. So they are extraordinarily sharp. And he's had them his entire career, barring the first few opening years. And because they were these Hong Kong hairdressers, these scissors have cut. The hairs of some of the rich and famous, you know, mm. uh, Ringo Starr would have had his beard trimmed by my father using these <laughs> scissors. Jean-Claude Van Damme had his hair cut using these scissors. Um, Brilliant. Neil Tennant of the Pet Shop Boys had his hair done by my dad with these scissors. Dr. Ruth had her hair <laughs> done with these scissors. And everyone in my family, in my entire life, up until the point of my moving over to London has had these scissors chop my hair my entire life. And mm. it's just an item that, as well as being extraordinarily cool, samurai scissors, yeah. is such a part of our family's story. It's almost another member of the family. It's <laughs> it, we've We've gone through some huge highs and lows with them. They were stolen one time in the Philippines, where my dad had a salon. Mm. And my dad explained to all the staff members that it had been blessed by Buddhists, which was true. The pair of scissors had been blessed by Buddhists. And so he said, the sad thing is whoever's got them is going to experience huge tragedy because they've stolen a thing blessed by a Buddhist. And the next day they were returned. They were thrown into the rubbish bin of the receptionist at the wow. salon and no one claimed responsibility for stealing them, but they almost disappeared. And they always seem to come back through weird mythology that my dad spreads around as as rumour. Um, <laughs> Um, And it
0: freaks people out. If you get cut by them, it will bleed forever. (laughs)
2: Exactly. It's stuff (laughs) like that. So, yeah. So um, they're very important to our family. And I would love for them to... Because they'll be as sharp 100 years from now as they are now. Yeah. So... They they're practical, you know. So so far, you've got a when you open this capsule, you've got a great book to read, and you can cut your hair. That's I want to make this a practical. It's very useful. Time capsule.
0: Well, I've got the flight booked, but I think your dad's gonna, you know, he's gonna put up a fight, isn't he?
2: well And unfortunately, he's got a serious weapon to fight you yeah, with. Of course, uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> the samurai scissors, unbelievable thing. Now, do you think they're made in the same method as a samurai sword? Then is that why they're so sharp? Don't they fold and fold and fold the metal again and again and again, beat it so that. In fact, within a samurai sword, I think the metal has been folded something like 100 times, and that's why it's so strong.
2: Right. No, you know? I, I don't, I've don't. never looked into it. Am I telling the... you a
0: fact you don't know?
2: Yeah, you are. That's amazing.
0: Oh. I didn't know that that's how they did that. Look it up. Yeah, they start with one piece of metal, and then they beat it flat, and then they fold it, I think, and then they beat it again flat, and then they fold it again. So it's the it's the folding of the metal over and over and over again, and they do it hundreds right. of times so that in the end, the metal is incredibly strong. That's very cool. Somebody's going to say to you he's talking absolute bollocks. <laughs> but
2: but I, <laughs> don't worry. I mean I'm sure they'll say he's made up the whole samurai. system anyway.
0: <laughs> I know it's true. It's bound to be bound to be true. It was in Shogun.
2: <laughs> oh, what the um James Clavell yeah.
0: novel? Yeah.
2: That's interesting because he's that's someone who's also sort of steeped in schreiber family law his book taipan sits mm. on our shelves uh which is all about the foundation of hong kong so ah. i was i was born and raised in hong kong mm. uh, as a result of my parents being there um till i was 13 and so you
0: were born i was hong born kong. there yeah i was right. born
2: there in 1984 uh adventist hospital and i left when i was just turning 13 in 97 so we left just before the handover back to china Mm. But, you know, the school that I went to, I in my year, I was the only fully Caucasian kid. Um, we spoke Mandarin and still do. So my life is very much steeped in Chinese culture, mm. um, but a bastardized version where it was very much um, expat yeah. Chinese. So these tiny things like James Clavell, when I hear a name like that, throws mm. me back to, you know, I think of Taipan, the book, and... The samurai scissors are just so caught up emotionally for me in remembering being a kid, just going through my dad and mum 's salon the whole time, sitting at reception, sitting at the feet of people whose hair he was doing, who i didn 't know at the time. It would mm-hmm. be people like Anne nicole Smith, you know these these big like Hollywood people, and I would have no idea who they were and I would be explained to who they were and it got me really excited that this kind of that's your life that exists as a thing mm. what is that you're <laughs> you're you go around just looking cool that's your job so uh,
0: that's my job
2: <laughs> you do it well thanks so yeah so they're um, they're kind of my hong kong item as it were in yeah. the um in yeah, the yeah to take capsule. you back to that time yeah
0: absolutely brilliant when we did your instagram shows your shit yeah, which I love doing. But, oh, uh, you were so good on it. Oh uh, well, but I remember, you remember me telling you a, a story about Anthony Quayle. Yeah, asking us to learn Shakespeare. Did I tell you that story? You did. Yes.
2: I love that story. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and actually, the final performance that I gave for him was on the stage in Hong Kong. We were in Hong Kong. Was it? it was a mad time. Everything was happening. We were going to lots of receptions. We, we were incredibly busy, and still, in between the matinee and the evening performance, you said, "Do you want to do your?" And that's where I did my piece of Hamlet for him. Wow. How all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. To this day, it stays with me. But uh, he took a photograph of me on the stage in Hong Kong performing that. And uh, and he then sent it to my mum saying, look at your boy. Isn't he great? It's just the most What's- delightful thing have happened
2: it's just wonderful i love that story so much i uh, we're giving snippets of it here because obviously you and i talked about it recently you're gonna have to watch shows you shit yeah okay yeah if you want to yeah. see the full because and it's uh, it's so worth listening to this full story from mike because and the final little uh bit that you say at the end of the show about walking near the globe theater uh, mm. which is plays into this which i won't say what it is but uh, it's just wonderful he sounded like the most extraordinary guy
0: Yeah, he was. He was. I could talk to you about him for hours, but we won't now. We're going to talk about you. We're going to talk about those scissors. I'm going to get on the plane. I'm going over to Sydney. I'll do my best. You know, but he sounds to me as if he's trained in martial arts, clearly. The samurai, samurai haircutter. Yeah, I do expect him to be in full armor. You know that, don't you? When I turn up weirdly he does
2: have a bit of a samurai bun going on at the moment which i caught on zoom this morning um so he is maybe in training so yeah not the best not the best time to extract them
0: from him okay all right still i'll get a trip to sydney yes (laughs) Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a haircut, if you want. And a haircut. Fantastic. That's the way, isn't it? I'll lull him into a false sense of security. Yeah. I'll say, yeah, can you come me with the samurai hair scissors? And then, oh, um, you couldn't get something from the back room for me. Just leave the scissors there. And then I'm gone. I've gone to run.
2: <laughs> yeah. Until over the tannoy, as you're flying out, someone says, we understand that there's a bad omen on the plane, and this might lead to complications. Has oh, anyone taken no. anything blessed by
0: Buddhists' <laughs> recently that they shouldn't have. And not only that, they're going to say to me at the airport, do you have any sharp objects in your bag? I'm in big (laughs) trouble.
2: It's weird. I'm just remembering as we talk about this, that the whole thing of my dad saying blessings by monks seems to be a bit of a theme that he uses. Because I remember as a kid, we were in Tibet. So my uncle used to run the Holiday Inn in Tibet Mm. back in the early 90s. And so I went there when I was about 10 or 11, and uh, it was a hard time to get into Tibet. You weren't really allowed in. So we got through because he was running, he was general manager, and uh, somehow he pulled some strings.
0: Mm.
2: And we were there, and there was this Buddhist site where there were all these little relics and these little rocks that had been carved on. And this lady who was on the trip with us took one of these rocks and went off. And then that night, we found out that Kurt Cobain had died, and my dad said, it's because you stole a rock that Kurt Cobain died. And we all knew it was a joke, but he kind of said it in a way that we kind of suggested maybe it was a bad idea to take this rock. So she went back for hours the next day out of her way to return the rock to this site.
0: Really? Um, and Kurt Cobain came alive?
2: He did. He resurrected, if you, you remember. Resur- I um, do
0: remember it well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, yeah, so
2: maybe his Buddhist thing, maybe he's got some power with the way he maybe. says that. So anyway, watch out for that when you say. I will them.
0: do. But um, I promise you I'll get them and they will go in the time capsule for you. Excellent. Okay, so we, yeah, the book, the scissors. What's next?
2: The next thing I'd like to put in is a McDonald's sausage and egg McMuffin. Um <laughs> Now, what I was thinking really hard about what I wanted to go in a time capsule, you know, you tend to want to pick things that maybe put you in a good light because, you know, this is a podcast and people Mm. will be listening. But the truth is, is that there's one huge Achilles heel in my life, which is the sausage and egg McMuffin from McDonald's. (laughs) It's been with me since I was a child you know, McDonald's cuts off its breakfast at 10.30 in the morning, every morning. Mm. Now I don't go, I, have, I haven't I have had one in a very long time. It's not something that I'm addicted to, but anytime it hits 10.30 and I clock it, there's a sadness in me that I go, <laughs> okay. today I can no longer get a sausage and egg McMuffin, even though I never was planning to anyway. And it's no. not something, I will have it maybe once every two months, I'll have a sausage and egg McMuffin, maybe longer, maybe, you know, six months. But it's just the one thing that is clicked into my taste buds so incredibly strongly that I know that my answer to questions like, if you had a final meal, what would it be? Sausage and Egg McMuffin. You know, wow. I, I, I know that in my bones. And so mm. I think I'd love for, in a hundred years time when this is opened, for there to be sitting a sausage and Egg McMuffin. And, you know, because they're so bad for you and full of preservatives, it'll probably still be edible for whoever <laughs> opens it in 100 years' time. Yeah. So they can taste our times as well.
0: Yes. Um, and go, yeah. what the... F- what? <laughs> this is delicious <laughs> what have we been doing eating all this stuff this is what we need
2: bring it back <laughs> and it's horrible i know it's so bad because i know how bad mcdonald's is and i know you know if this isn't a time capsule they'll look at it and this almost will be an example of the way that we destroyed the animals of our planet i know mm. it's bad but mm. oh my god i love it i love it so much nothing tastes as good as a sausage <laughs> and egg McMuffin. i've never
0: had one dan
2: Oh, Mike, you were missing. I mean, don't because you'll you'll be talking like I am. Like this is Would like I? an AA meeting <laughs> for McDonald's
0: products. Um, it was that Dan. He got me onto them. Oh, I just can't <laughs> stop. I know I'm twenty seven stone. I know. I can't help it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I just I um I don't have too much really to say about it. Other than no, I it's just fine. I love it so much. I lost a tooth to it, actually, not oh, too long you? ago. Yeah, that was almost my moment where I went, I have to stop because this is embarrassing. I, I snuck into a McDonald's uh, mm. about a year ago and I took a bite and half a tooth was sitting in the the sausage McMuffin.
0: And it was yours?
2: Well, at first I didn't know that. I thought they'd no. put a tooth in my thing. So I was sat there fuming going, how am I going to do this? I can't walk. I mean, this is going to send shockwaves because I'm so angry that there's mm. a tooth in my and I suddenly started noticing in my fury that my tongue sort of kept slipping into a missing spot in my mouth. <laughs> so that's a new hole. What's that? And Was it a, an actual tooth or a cap? It was
0: a tooth. A it was real, a tooth. Oh, my word.
2: It, it wasn't the full tooth. It was cracked in half. So I ah. cracked it on a sausage and egg McMuffin, which is not the hardest food. It's pretty sturdy, but it's not, you know, it's not like a...
0: No, sometimes occasionally you'll get a bit of bone or something in it, won't you? And that's that probably could what could be happened. what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. I went to the very first McDonald's that opened in England. You're kidding. My school friends and I, we were so excited by the idea of it. Somebody said this amazing American diner has opened. What year? Oh, so it must have been about 1972, three. It was in Croydon. I think they opened two at the same time, one in London and one in Croydon. And we drove all the way from my house and we all ate it and all of us took the little bit of gherkin or dill out. Because we thought it was disgusting.
2: Oh, I I, I like that. I like. Of I like course the you do now, but it was an yeah. alien
0: taste. Such an alien taste to us at the time. Yes. Did you like it or not? I did. I thought it was a bit much. Actually, I think I had one of like a Big a, Mac kind of. Yeah, thing. a Big Mac. That was it. So it's a. It was a Big Mac. We all had Big Macs and fries or chips as we asked for. And yeah. I've never seen so much Coca Cola in my life. Mm. Yeah,
2: it's such an interesting thing, isn't it? Because at the time, what an innovation! You you've suddenly got two brothers called McDonald's, and then this Ray Kroc guy comes along, and mm. and they've suddenly cracked a way that you can have hot meals on the go. Very quick. at the time when it was invented, everyone was probably going this is just, this is a remarkable step forward. This is like going to DVD from the VHS, you know, yeah. it's it's or a CD from vinyl. Like, this is an amazing leap. And I often wonder, you know, if, if those guys were able through a time machine to come back to this present time, mm. how confused they would be that they've become a symbol of global domination of capitalism and yeah. how they've destroyed so much of the planet and it's it it would be a horrific thing to know that that was the legacy of what effectively was just quite a simple idea of mm. why don't we just make something easier and quicker for people to eat and you know if you if you step away from the realities of how it's destroyed the planet that mm. is still such like a wow yeah i'll invest in that you know yeah. I'm, i i i never invest in anything but <laughs> That's the kind of sentence it makes you think of when you hear something like that. And it's very bizarre how quickly it kind of took over. I've, have you ever seen, it's one of my favourite things to watch on YouTube, there's an American series, I think it was called What's My Line, and... Mm-hmm. The premise of What's My Line was someone would come on and they would have to guess what their job was. But if they had a celebrity on, they'd all have to wear a blindfold. And so you would have Groucho Marx come on and he Mm. would put on a silly voice. Yes, no. Yes, no questions. And then they would be like, are you in town for a thing? And they would slowly work out that it's Groucho Marx. Take off the thing. It's great. So that was for celebrities. Yeah, And then there's an episode where a non-celebrity comes on, and they don't have the blindfold, and it's a man called Colonel Sanders. And they have to guess what this guy does for a living. And it's just extraordinary to think of a time where this guy wasn't a global face. But
0: yeah.
2: it's they just had so no hard.
0: idea. He was just starting, was he? So he was saying, yeah. I've started a place where I make fried chicken.
2: He had, I think at this point, about uh twelve franchises or the number is it might be twelve or twelve hundred, but he certainly wasn't famous. And so he's like, We're doing very well. We got some chicken places up in this place and this place. Good Lord. And they're like, Well, well, good luck with your business. We hope it works out for you. <laughs> and it's just extraordinary that in the time of, say, Groucho Marx and, and that, that this was an unknown face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Someone who's as famous as face as Charlie Chaplin's.
0: His face now would be more famous than Groucho Marx.
2: Absolutely. Groucho, if he did the show now, they wouldn't have to wear the blindfold. Whereas they might be like, are you the guy who invented that silly mask uh, that we get in party shops? That might be (laughs) what they think his claim to fame is. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, he's eclipsed, yeah, all of them, basically.
0: Good Lord. Well, fast food, I mean, you know, we all everybody at some stage. We've been very grateful for it. McDonald's is always the answer. In you go. It is. Shove it in your face.
2: Yeah, I don't want to endorse it. I'm not going to be feeding McDonald's to my kids. I'm going to try and keep in the way.
0: But I can tell you now it's going to be really difficult. The peer pressure is enormous. Yeah, of course. And I'm the kind of person that will totally buckle into it as well.
2: But Mm. I'm going to try as long as I can. But Mm -hmm. all I'm saying is this is not McDonald's I'm putting in here. No. This is a singular item, the sausage and egg McMuffin, which is the finest thing we've ever created for the taste buds, (laughs) in my opinion.
0: (laughs) Lovely. Well, I should put it in there then. And uh, I might buy two and I might try it. I'm going to take the risk. Oh, wow. If I become addicted, so be it. Don't get one when you're in Australia
2: because they use a different kind of sausage, which completely ruins it. I had to do my teenage years in Australia yeah. not enjoying a sausage McMuffin because... Oh, no.
0: This is wrong, you said. This is wrong. Disaster. What are you doing? Yeah. I would shout <laughs> in the McDonald's. So you were the mad teenager.
2: <laughs> no, I want a real sausage and egg McMuffin. Can we get a real sausage and egg McMuffin in here, please? Nothing. I'd just be kicked out.
0: It's strange, those cultural differences isn't it, between Australia and England. Vegemite, things like that. Yeah. Know, sort of go, what's wrong with Marmite?
2: What's wrong with it is it's not as good as Vegemite, but outside of, ah, outside of that, it's uh, I see
0: what you're saying. Speaks teenage Australian.
1: <laughs> <Yes>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dan. That's inside the time capsule. Right, we've got two left. So one of these is one you want to get rid of yeah. and one is one you want to keep. So in any order. Okay, we're going to take a break here for some adverts. Hopefully we'll be back with you very shortly. welcome back. Okay, let's find out what the fourth thing is that Dan Schreiber would like to put in his time capsule. I would like to put into the
2: time capsule a fully charged Kindle, which contains PDFs of all of the books that I own. Uh. So I don't want the books that you can get online. I want to convert page by page, every single book that's in my bookshelf uh, at home to have on the Kindle. Because so many of the books have little notes that are written in them. Some of Uh them have huge meaning for me uh, in terms of an author I met who signed the book for me. Mm. I've got two books, basically, that I hold as transformative moments in my life. One is when I was in Sydney growing up, I was obsessed with comedy Mm. And I was obsessed with the idea of doing comedy but in Sydney there was no way of doing that there was how do you how do you do comedy it doesn't really happen in in Australia in the sleepy town I was living in I didn't know a single author I didn't know a single TV person I, I had no connection to the world that I so madly loved and mm. and that world was comedy American British and Australian but that seemed to happen in places like Melbourne rather than in Sydney or the Adelaide and, Festival Oh the Adelaide Festival exactly And I don't know if that even existed when I was growing up in Australia. I don't know if those festivals at all existed. I I don't think they did. Um, Mm. Or certainly I wasn't aware of them. And so uh, when I was 16, I received a book in the mail off the back of – I wrote a play at school, and the book that arrived was a script book of the movie Notting Hill, And it was signed to me by Richard Curtis Uh off the back of a friend who came to see the play, thought it was very funny. I'd written it in a kind of Blackadder-ish style. Mm. And she happened to know Richard Curtis's sister. And they sorted it out so that he wrote me an encouraging note inside this book. And suddenly, I was connected with the gods of comedy. You know, for me, this is (laughs) – I couldn't believe it. It was Blackadder. It was Mr. Bean. It was Four Weddings. And I've brought that book everywhere that I've gone and I don't wanna I don't wanna put all of my physical books into the time capsule. I wanna have that little bit that he wrote to me in the front of that book with a tiny little mark that he did on page 35, I think it was, to a bit of dialogue referencing what he wrote in the note. Uh. It's tiny It's tiny things like that. I have so many books where I've bought secondhand, where someone has loved a book, where mm. they've written in the margins their thoughts like, this is a crap line or this is a wonderful line. and mm. And that always enhances a book for me to see someone else who's gone through it and added their little thoughts to it. And my favourite copies of books that I own, of my favourite books, are the ones where I found them in a second-hand bookshop, and there's little scrawlings, hopefully from the author sometimes, uh, yeah. otherwise just from random people. Yeah, sometimes
0: you don't know if it's the author, do you? Because I've got mm. books, which i found them, where clearly the author has given it to a friend, and yeah. it'll say, to dear Bunny, all the best, and thanks for a lovely party, Trevor. And, of course, yes. if you are writing it to a friend you wouldn't put your full name. Yeah. It's a lovely thing to own though, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is. I th- I think it's I think it transforms a book mm. weirdly. It also I also get very influenced by the thoughts of a random person. I'll be reading it and realize I've been reading this completely wrong. Look what they've pointed out to me. But yeah. and so I I do try and track down books that have scribblings in it from other people. I'll show you my my favorite one. So obviously this is going to be a bit hard to Uh, visually for um, your listeners, but hopefully I can describe it enough. This is a book that I own called The Master Atlas of Greater London. Mm. And it's, um, it's a book that I found online... So it's all it is is a it's a big roadmap atlas of of London, um, yeah. All the parts and everything. It?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: it doesn't actually say, but I can trace it to at least 1971. Is right. when I definitely know that it is from, and the reason I know that is mm. is is this coming out backwards for you or forwards? No, I'm getting it. So here is the um, here. Sorry, that's all right. Is the previous owner of this book? So if you can see the handwriting at the top...
0: Yes. Ah, this belongs to S. Milligan, 9... Orange Court, is it? Orm Court. Orm Court. W2. W2. Oh, my word. S- so this and that was... is definitely Spike Milligan's handwriting, because I've got some signed Spike Milligan books. And that's his handwriting.
2: Yeah, so... So this is his Master Atlas of Greater London, and you can see here, the reason I know it's from 1971, is he's written in a box, Norma bought this for me, Christmas 1971. Norma was Norma Farnes, who was his agent, who looked after him his entire, well, for a long time in his career, Mm. uh, 40 years or so. And... I mean, this book has to go uh, as a PDF into the time capsule, definitely, because yeah. it's packed, as I say, with scrollings. It's really wonderful. There's a couple of pages where he's written all the spots that he goes to in London, all the hotels that he <sighs> likes to stay in. It's, it's a total guide. Now, look at this as well. This is page 86, if anyone has a copy of this book. Mm-hmm. And um, we're in Greenwich area. And so he's got a little line that goes to a little road called Jackson Street, and it says where mum, Mrs. F. Milligan, lived as a girl before she left for India. And then here he's written, I worked here, 1938 to 1939, and it's the Royal Dockland Yard. And throughout the book, a little scribble's about my first flat when we moved to London. This is where I lived when we were older. It's just got all these little scribblings wow, of it's a, it's Spike a map Milligan's of London. Yeah, exactly. And off the back of having found this, my wife and I have bought, hasn't arrived yet, a similar book. And we're going to do the same thing for our entire life of That's London. That's a
0: great idea.
2: Yeah, and where where
0: did you find that book, Dan?
2: I found this online. This was on an auction site. So Mm. back in two thousand and eight, Spike Milligan's stuff was auctioned off, and part of it were these big lots of all his library, his personal library books. Mm. And whoever bought that has now started selling them. There'll be huge months in between one coming up online, where it will just have something like from Spike Milligan's library, and and this was one of them. And. And I was ready to pay a lot of money for this because I just (laughs) I saw a few photos and I said to my wife, I was like, I'm so sorry, but I need this in my life. I need Mm -hmm. to get this. And she was like, Come on, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm just this has to be the one time that I can just go and absolutely splurge and fight for this in an auction. There's
0: no limit. There's no limit. No limit. I'm not gonna hold back. Nobody's gonna beat me. If it keeps going up, I'm going to keep going up with it. We remortgaged the house.
2: Yeah, my opening gambit was uh, £250, which I thought was conservative amounts. I thought, this is going to be taken over instantly, and let's go. Yeah. £22, I got No. Call
0: yeah, uh, £22. There you are, you see. What is precious to one person? To a lot of other people, they say, well, why would you want that?
2: Yeah, and I love, I love you know, there's tiny things like he'll draw where to walk when clearly he's like, okay, this is the route to memorize. So let me just, in a blue pen, put the road uh, from here to this is where I'm going. Mm. So you can literally walk the routes that Spike would have walked in Uh, his time by walking around with this book. And I I plan to do that. I plan to go and and have a walk around Spike's London using this book.
0: Um, And for anybody for the future, I just have to say the words, damn you, Google Maps. (laughs) Because you've sort of ruined this for other people because it's such a lovely thing, isn't it?
2: Yeah, there is. I mean, there is a wonderful thing that you can do on Google Maps, which is you can... Put in pins into it for Mm. other people to so my friend ash does it a lot he shares with me his pins where it's like these are all the restaurants that i go to and stuff and Ah. but we don't do it enough i don't think uh sharing sort of the the important locations so yeah the reason that i was showing you that again is because this is a book where i want the pdf put into my kindle yes um
0: because so I, you can I, just browse through your library anytime, yeah, and, and, and it and, is your library. It's not just the books. It's what's in them and what's on them.
2: Exactly, and books mm. are everything to me. I, I spend my life in bookshops and second-hand bookshops. I buy them all the time on eBay. I, I have too many books, and I don't read virtually any of them i read mm. bits of them i mean mm. and that's another wonderful thing on kindle you can get previews of books which give you the first chapter or so so there's <laughs> going to be a couple of thousand of those because that's as far as i read it a lot of books so that's that's fantastic but yeah it's just going to be a kindle that's going to have a little solar panel charger very important at mm. the uh, bottom of it so that whoever mm-hmm. opens up this capsule Can um, never run out of the charge because you know how these Kindle cords change over the years. You know, I don't want them suddenly unable to.
0: Saying we just haven't got a charger for it. If only. Exactly. I wonder what's on it. Yeah. Something quite interesting. Yeah. Do you you see how I've I've got a quite interesting quote? You did. (laughs) 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 Oh, that's. uh, Well, I'm envious, I have to say. I think I could spend hours browsing through that atlas. Yeah. It looks fascinating. It really is. Even to see
2: that this is where mum lived before she moved to India is mm. just a wonderful sentence um, to have in his hand to be... And I'm a huge... I, I love London so much. I I obsess over the history of London. I mm. love that, you know, there's a street in London uh, in Covent Garden where... Yeah. There's a TGI Fridays, right? Yes, I know. It's a TGI Fridays. And there's a plaque, a blue plaque on the wall, which says this is where Charles Dickens worked in the workhouse when he was younger. So I looked into that and you're looking at the window of TGI Fridays. As I'm reading it, it says that he used to sit in the window of this building, adding black boot polish to a tin because it was a it was a polishing uh, shop, and they mm-hmm. wanted to show how fresh their products were. So they would have boys sit in the front, and they would take this black polish, and they would pack it into the tins, and they would close the lid, and that's what would be sold. So it's almost like how some shops have people baking bread at the front, and you're like, ooh, this yeah. has got to be really fresh. So it was that. And he used to sit there, and he used to do that with his friend at the time, who was called Fagan. Mm-hmm. So Fagin was a real person who used to sit in this window. And so you're standing outside this place going, my God, I'm I'm standing on history. And then I learned that just down the road is a very famous theatre, which, um, oh, Mike, you'll be able to tell me which one it is. It's on the Strand, but the stage door comes out onto Maiden Lane
0: in Common Garden. Oh, yes, uh, Garden. The, the vaudeville.
2: No, not vaudeville. Uh, it's right. the... Um, the Adelphi? The Adelphi. Mm. The Adelphi. So... Charles Dickens, when he started getting a bit of money and was becoming interested in the arts, used to go and watch plays every single night at the Adelphi. And then he would go to stage door and he would meet these actors. So that's just down the road. It's it's less than a 30-second walk from where he was sitting doing the boot polishing. Mm. And then if you walk a further 30 seconds down that road, there is the first club that was opened up in... London, I believe, or all of England virtually, uh, called Rules, which is Mm. one of the oldest members club.
0: R-A-W-L-S.
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he used to sit there with the literati of the day when he was at his height, when everyone knew his face like we know Colonel Sanders' face at this point. (laughs) And just this one road in London saw the evolution of Charles Dickens from pauper to rising star who was inspired by the arts to king of the arts world i yeah. mean in this one minute stretch of walk that you can do and that's why i love london and that's why this book was particularly important to me was someone i love so much like spike milligan to see his london to see anyone's london who i admire is, is a fascinating thing mm. um it's weird because this is just one book on the Kindle, uh, but we've, we've. I know, we've sort to of, go.
0: It's become it's the main thing. Only I mean, we could talk through the rest of them if you like, but uh, it's extraordinary. <laughs> I saw Eddie Izzard in Edinburgh do, well, I think he's learning great expectations, memorizing great expectations, and he performed it in the music room at the assembly halls on the very day. 150 years later, that Charles Dickens stood there and read it. Wow. I know. In the uh, same room? It it was the same room, same stage, same place, uh, 150 years exactly to the day, and Eddie Azad stood there and performed Great Expectations.
2: How how far into it did he get? It was
0: an edited version, but he basically did the whole story in sort of two hours. Wow. It was fantastic. And he had memorised great swathes of it. Is incredible, yeah. So, but I agree with you. That sense of history, that sense of feeling so close to something that seems a long way away, and then suddenly there it is. It's right in your grasp. Yeah, it's very exciting, isn't it?
2: And it's great when you can feel that. When if a lot of people don't have that connection, then that's absolutely fine. I am one of those people that does. I, mm. if I'm standing in a spot where something huge in history even if it was a tiny event like I would I would travel uh, and I'm planning to to Liverpool I would just want to stand in the field where Paul McCartney saw John Lennon on stage playing with the Quarrymen. men yeah and I want to just feel what a magnificent day that was for everyone <laughs> that <laughs> yes. that happened, that the Beatles happened because of this field that's here and I'm standing in it. It's stuff like that, that really makes me feel connected with all of history, the locations. Mm. And I mean, I would have loved to have been there at that Izzard performance. That's exactly the kind of thing that... That's
0: why I told you about it, because I knew that's exactly the sort of thing that you meant. It's, it's that connection. Just seeing Eddie Izzard anyway is always great, but that thing in itself, that extraordinary connection of time and place... It's really moving, I think. It, well, I found the whole thing really moving.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And he did it at the yeah. same time, did it at 10 o'clock in the morning. So it was it was just perfect.
2: Was <laughs> wow, really? He just nailed Everything every element. That's, that's yeah. wonderful. So no one talked about... I know people who went to see that, and no one has told me that, that that's the reason that he was doing it. They just said, oh, I thought I was seeing an Eddie Izzard gig, and it was really weird. He just was reading Great Expectations. <laughs> no one has said... What that A, he was memorizing it, like that's not been a thing that I've heard about it. And then the fact of the timing of the and the venue, I know how can that escape the
0: retelling of that story? (laughs) Yeah, he just did a bit of Dickens, honestly. Yeah, nothing about Hoovers or anything or cats, he's getting lazy. Was really annoying.
2: (laughs) I find, do you know what I find interesting about the fact that he wants to do that with Dickens? I very luckily got to meet him once after I saw him do a show in London and. He played, just before he went on stage, French versions of David Bowie. So Bowie, had having translated his songs, I think, mm. into French, might have been German. Mm. And I got to meet him afterwards, and I said to him, I thought that was really cool, playing all that Bowie music. I haven't actually heard those songs done in that language before by him. That was really cool. Are you, are you a big fan? And he said that he doesn't really do that over people. He doesn't have fandom over mm. um, people, he admires what they might have done and uses it as motivation, but he doesn't ever go, I want to be that person or I want to do something as great as that person. Uh, certainly that's my memory of what he said. So that, that yeah. surprises me slightly that Dickens might be someone that he wants to give that moment to and, and, and be a part of that legacy in a way, that history yeah, of I think of it him. must
0: have been the thing itself, not necessarily the man. It must have been mm. this is an opportunity to do something extraordinary. I once bumped into his tour manager in Oxford, and I, he said, "Oh, I've got Eddie, and Eddie's on over the road in the new theatre. Do you want to come and say hello?" So I said, "Yeah, yeah." We watched the last sort of ten minutes of the show, and the last ten minutes of the show was a routine about a Hoover, and it was very funny. <laughs> it was really a brilliantly funny ten minutes of of comedy. And uh, then we came off, went backstage, and I chatted to him, and uh, and I said, "I'd love that that Hoover thing." It's, I'm not surprised you finished with that. He said, "Oh, I improvised that tonight." Wow. And I I spoke to Peter Bennett-Jones and he said, yeah, no, he does it all the time. You never know when he's going to finish. It's it's so annoying. We don't know when the get-out is. come. <laughs> don't know when to book a restaurant for. You know. Yeah, yeah. He just Amazing. writes on stage.
2: Yeah, a lot of comics do that, that I know. I think it's so, it's wonderful when you know that that's what they're doing as well. You're, mm. you're watching with that inside knowledge knowing that this is fresh coming out of nowhere yeah. is a magical thing uh, mm. to watch. And then also on the flip side, it's wonderful when a heckle comes in and the heckle is so specific to a bit of material that they have and they're able to launch into the material as if it was off the top of the... Yeah, end. yeah.
0: Thanks very much. Yeah, it's just... Although I've seen the opposite. I've seen uh, one of the very first comic relief gigs. Ben Elton came and did a bit of stand-up. Oh, yeah. And after about a couple of minutes, somebody shouted out, We've seen this, do something new. And he did about 15 minutes of going back at this heckler about... And for God's sake, you know, it's a charity. Well, yeah, I'm going to sit down and write an entirely new routine. I'm going to try it out in front of you. Yeah, and I'm going to die a death because I don't know if it works or not. Instead of doing something I know works, I've just come on to do my 10 minutes. And he went on and on and on attacking this man at how unfair yeah. it was to expect him to write something new and to perform yeah. a fresh piece. I remember it's all gathering in the wings because it got so exciting. It was very funny and very brilliant, what he did. But those moments are, are extraordinary, aren't they, when they happen?
2: Yeah, yeah. that's amazing, because Ben Elton is in the category of people that I would say would be able to write a whole new routine.
0: Yeah, yeah, quite. Yeah. Anyway, OK, I'm going to get that Kindle. Yes. Solar Charger, PDFs of your entire library into the time capsule. So we've got one final item. Yes, Hmm.
2: So, uh, can I give honourable shout-outs to the things that didn't make it quite yeah, into the do. time That'd capsule? Yeah, please do. That'd be really
0: interesting, yeah.
2: Uh, so, things that made it right up to the, the sort of final line. <sighs> One was a photograph that Paul McCartney took of me that <sighs> I've not seen. The Beatles mean everything to me. And I got to meet Paul McCartney while working on a project, and he got out of his car, and I was with his buddy Jeff Dunbar, who's an artist, <sighs> and... Paul went, guys, don't move. And he took a photo of us and he went, there we go. There's the photo of the day. And he put the camera away. And I've never seen the photo and I (sighs) never will, because it's just going to be one photo in a massive archive of Paul McCartney's. And I don't have a photo of him from that day. And so I would love to have chucked in a photo taken by Paul of me into capsule. Didn't
0: quite make it. I have a telegram for Paul McCartney. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I should have shown you that on Show Us Your Shit. Yes, you should yeah.
2: have. What, what, was, uh, what was it for?
0: When we did our parody thing, the heebie-jeebies, years and years ago. One of the people we parodied was Paul McCartney and Wings. It had the line in it, I have got my wife here with me. She may be singing in a different key. Which is quite rude, really. <laughs> uh, and we got, a, we got a telegram from Paul McCartney saying, why can't you leave us poor share crop farmers alone? Oh. <laughs> Very funny, Paul McCartney.
2: Nice. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing? so
0: cool. Yeah. Oh, I've man. got it somewhere. It's somewhere in a cupboard.
2: Dig it out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Dig it out and come back on my show and show that, because like, <laughs> I'd need to see that. Um, and then last uh, sort of honourable mention to an item that didn't quite make it in. Please is do. um It is a feeling. It is the feeling that I had and the feeling you get when you meet Adrian Edmondson. So <laughs> this happened just before lockdown. Um, I was at, speaking of Ben Elton, I was um, at Upstart Crow, the preview where it was the press night where everyone was invited. And mm. I brought Anna Chazinski with me from No Such Thing as Fish and previous guests on My Time Capsule. Mm. And then we found out that there was a party happening afterwards down the road. Mm. So went along to it and... I was downstairs talking to Alan Davies, who I've known for years via q i and as we're talking, Adrian Edmondson walks up and i'm I'm in shock because <laughs> Adrian Edmondson is such a huge deal to me um the bottom live shows, particularly I think are the single greatest piece of comedy ever made i think i just I could watch them forever um those mm. live gigs would and aid and I'd never, in all the years that I've worked in TV, you eventually kind of get to meet most people if you work in comedy and you know certain people in those circles. It just kind of happens. And I'd never met Adrian Edmondson. So I was staying silent. I was very scared because I just thought this is one of my heroes here. And Alan said, sorry, do you guys know each other? Hey, this is Dan. And I went, hi, I'm, I'm Dan. And he went, oh, no such thing as a fish. I recognize the voice. Oh my word! And Mike, I lost it. I, <laughs> I, I, I blubbered. I couldn't speak. Alan and Katie, his wife, had to sort of say, "It's okay. Calm down. Calm down." And I, I could not believe that this hero knew who I was. He didn't even say if he liked the show or not. It didn't matter. You, you know, he could hate it, but. I got this buzz over my body of, Mm. I'm so excited. And the reason I was going to add it into the time capsule, this feeling, is because I think if you can retain the feeling of the excitement that you had when you were getting into it, from the excitement that I had all those years ago when I was a 16-year-old getting a letter from Richard Curtis and a book Mm. signed by him, Mm. to being 16, 17 years into an industry where I've met and worked with most of my heroes... To still get that insane buzz when meeting someone who's made a difference in your life and that not being something that's suddenly a dulled, you know, you're you're ragged through the years. Oh, it was the best feeling in the world, even though I embarrassed myself to shit. Even though it was actually a horrific meeting.
0: Yeah, 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 no, I'm, I'm with you. Absolutely fantastic. And he is one of the nicest men you'll ever meet. Well, I it's, don't know. I didn't. I mean, no, we he is. I oh, didn't it. get to speak. I was like oh, freaked no. out on him. And, no, no, he stayed. He was
2: nice. He was really yeah, nice. But like, I just said random shit to him, and he really stuck in, going, "Okay, this guy's struggling here." Um, um, but no, it was yeah. So anyway, that's that's uh those are the two honourable mentions. I sat
0: along. This is a very long time ago. I sat in the uh, seats of the theatre where the comic strip was done as a live show mm, so yes. when it first opened, and sat with. Aid and Rick Mayle and Peter Richardson. We auditioned some people to see if they wanted to join. So I was present when Aid met his wife.
2: Oh my God. You saw the Jennifer and Dawn. Audition. We auditioned
0: French and Saunders, yes.
2: Oh my goodness. That is so there are there are quite a few moments I think where if time travelers needed sort of a guide to time travel for comedy moments Mm -hmm. to visit, that has to be in there as one of the seminal moments when French and Saunders walked on and were introduced to to you guys. It's
0: just They were so funny. They were naturally funny. You know, you just spotted it immediately. Yeah, I think they went on that night. It's fabulous. They went on that night? Oh, they wow. They went that night, yeah. What a story. How cool. <laughs> I'd forgotten it until you told me about aid, and then I suddenly went on oh, no, it, yeah, I remember things with aid.
2: That's so cool. How exciting that if I do uh, put a book together, a time travel, and get to do it, I'm going to get to bump into you. Uh, yeah, in the. You'll uh, see me
0: there. Yeah. Young and thin with a beard. Uh, brilliant well i'm gonna have to get you another time capsule i think yeah i'll get you a second one and you can put some more in yeah but in the meantime we need to put in one thing that you want to get rid of from your life yes
2: um so the item that i've picked for that is um my body hair (laughs) i i want the body hair stripped off my body and put and buried away forever it has been (laughs) the bane of my
0: life. To never regrow.
2: To never regrow, yeah. Because I'm a, I'm a very hairy guy um, and I've always, it's, I guess we all in our life have something that to everyone else seems such a tiny thing. Like, why would you, why would you even think that that's a problem, having body hair, it's fine. To me, it's kind of defined so much of my life. And, you know, I'm, reticent slightly to bury it in a bad way, because because of the hair, I've made changes in my life that Mm. meant socially, it's led me to different places. You know, growing up as a teenager in Australia, living on one of the most beautiful beaches in the world in Palm Beach, uh, where they film Home and Away, Mm. everyone went to the beach. And I would not because I hated my body hair so much. It was such a horrific thing. I felt like Bigfoot walking <laughs> out of a swamp when I was in the ocean. And and again, I know this sounds uh, like, just get over it. But I, for some reason, I can't. And I hated it. I've hated it my whole life. And so it's meant that I've not gone and lived a life of being a a surfer in Australia because Mm. I didn't want it to be seen. You
0: sat indoors and read books instead.
2: Exactly. I sat indoors and read books. So here's why it's a bit of a a sort of, is it a good thing or a bad thing for me? Because would I be doing everything that I'm doing now if it wasn't for this hair on my body? (laughs) Um, But I do know that now that I feel life is completely on the track that I wanted to be on with a beautiful wife. I've got two beautiful boys, uh, you know, doing the job that I dreamed about doing when I was 10, really, you know, I've I've always wanted to work in comedy, doing anything in it, you know, if it was producing or writing or making tea for Adrian Edmondson, you know, something. (laughs) I just wanted to be around it. And now I feel like I could get rid of the hair, and it's not going to be influential on, <laughs> on the course of my life. Um, so this yeah. is a good point to to shave it all off and yeah. pack it into a bag and pop it into the capsule as a uh, as a goodbye.
0: Yeah. Well, your wife's not going to object to this, though, is she? No, she
2: she likes the hair on yeah. my body. This is well. That's and, what I mean. You know- if
0: you take it all off, will she not go? Hang on a minute. You just. You know, this is no good. Turn the light on. I think somebody else is in bed with me.
2: Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's it's a big problem. And what's weird is I find I don't like it. I find it disgusting, the hair, right? <laughs> so when I hear that Fenella likes the hair, weirdly, I think she's a weirdo for that. Yeah. I think, well, what's your problem? I don't want to, like, if we were dating, I'd be like, I don't want to go out with you. You like guys with body hair. That's that's <laughs> so weird. Yet I would be pushing away the one person I was compatible with. Um, So I was very lucky Fenella was um, into hair. Here's a weird thing. Genuinely, I think Fenella is the first person ever to see me naked because of how much... I hated my hair.
0: That's how much you hated it.
2: Yeah, and wow. I was always—I used to—I um, I used to turn the lights off in a room if I was in my dating days, so mm. that I would not be seen naked. And I would get under the blankets, and I would um, get naked under the blankets in case yeah. the light came on. While and then I the was... girl would
0: get into bed, and she say, "Could you take that jumper off?"
2: Honestly, that genuinely happened to me. <laughs> no, I was, yeah, I was—I was naked in bed, and this, this, this lady. Ran her hand up and down my naked hairy thigh, mm. and she whispered into my ear, "Well, now let's get you out of those trousers." No. Yep, that actually happened to me. That happened with my real legs. <laughs> that, that was a real thing, and I yes. was really drunk at the time. I, I I pretended to take them off, hoping that she hoping that she wouldn't go back she to feel, feel down feel again. again. Yeah. Oh, no.
0: sorry, forgot to take these down. Sorry, the dogs got in with us. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I mean, that's—I
2: swear to God—that that's real, and that's—and I, I the, literally, I should say, what I just said is the real story that mm. that happened, and that is part of the long, ongoing sort of slight psychological warfare that I've had with the body hair of, mm. of my body, and um, now that I'm with Fenn, I'm totally comfortable with it, and I walk around naked around the house all the time. All, all the, the time. I, you're lucky; I have clothes uh, yeah. on right
0: now. Um, just, just but, with the kids going. Ugh. Uh, yeah, oh jesus oh God. <laughs> God. put it away damn, honestly yeah i keep <laughs> saying to them like
2: willful like hit my belly and he'll be like what's that and i'll be like this is something i hope you never have to have i hope you've got your mum's genes here her mm. side of the family because uh, it's yeah but so it's it's an odd thing but it's uh, it's true i want it gone now
0: if you want it gone it's gone we're going to put it into the time capsule you'll, you'll never have to suffer it again i want to see you clean shaven <laughs> it's going to be weird well this i mean i'm, I'm happy with beard
2: face okay. hair just kind of body stuff. hair body it's the, yeah it's,
0: it's from the neck down. down okay neck down i want That's to be
2: <laughs> stripped of all the hair
0: you see the problem is that really when you think about it your dad could have helped you here but sadly <laughs> i've taken his samurai scissors away <laughs> and now it's never going to be that good a cut you're going to be stubbly exactly <laughs> It's going to, yeah, the growth back is going to be horrible. Horrible. All right, then. I'm going to put that into the time capsule and I'm going to seal <laughs> it up and uh, bury it. And it's gone from this day forth for a hundred years.
2: Yes. The body hair is going to be a weird item in that It's going to be. Packet. What the? Oh. What is this? Is there little plaques to, to, to explain, or is this just uh, going to be random? You get what you get. They will
0: have to work it out. No, they're going to open up and say, I, th- I think it was an animal of some sort, but it's obviously <laughs> died. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Or, or maybe it's shed its skin. I don't know. There's enough here for a whole bear. Is it a bear? <laughs> it's been a huge animal. Maybe it was a mammoth. <laughs> was it killed by the samurai scissors? Was this a, a fight, a battle? Let's look it up on the Kindle. <laughs> oh, Dad, fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much for giving me your time.
2: Ah, oh, thank you for having me. So fun.
0: You have been listening to my time capsule with me, Mike Fenton Stevens and my guest, Dan Schreiber. If you haven't done already, you can subscribe to this podcast on ACAST, Spotify or iTunes or your own favorite podcast provider. And if you get the chance, we'd love it if you would rate us and leave a review. You can follow us for all the latest news about my time capsule on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You just search at my TC pod or at Fenton Stevens or even just search my time capsule. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens, and the music is by Pass the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. Thank you very much for listening. Right, I'm off to get out of these trousers. Or possibly just shave my legs. Bye.